Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So yeah, magnetic desire was, was you know, just a nice phrase because it really puts together how important emotion is. And if we think about basic human emotions, um, the, you know, the, the model that I've used in the book is of these eight basic human emotions. And because of loss aversion, five of the eight are what we call survival emotions. So fear, anger, disgust, shame, and sadness. They're all things that we do anything to avoid. And that's actually helped us to survive. Mm-hmm. At the other end of the spectrum are love and trust on one and then joy and excitement. So those are the emotions that are behind magnetic desire, you know, the things that you really want, the things that bring you love or make you feel, you know, safe and and trusting and make you excited. Yeah. And then in between those two sets of emotions is surprise. And I do believe now more that I've been doing vision boards for a long time that I don't try to cover ev- every aspect of what I want. I try to leave a bit of room for magic, basically. So, you know, you and I don't actually know everything that every good thing that could happen to us. So yeah. I like to leave a bit of room for something that I didn't expect to be able to happen. Um, and so the manifestation part is is really that the, the extension of the, the vision board becoming an action board, which is that the vision board primes your brain to notice opportunities that may otherwise have passed you by. But the additional bit to that is that primes your brain to notice and grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed you by. So manifestation is about grasping opportunities and making, you know, the things that you dream of um, into a reality. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Tara, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually got your book by way of your publicist, The Source, and I loved it because of the fact that it was a science-based explanation of the law of attraction. And I've always been incredibly skeptical about people who could not back up all these things with research, despite the fact that I am a spiritual person. And a lot of the you know guests here, as I was saying to you before we hit record, uh, have been spiritual teachers. Uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents while you were growing up that have shaped and influenced who you've become and what you've done with your life? Hmm. Um, that's such an interesting question. So I would say um, I resonated with a lot of what you've just said, because, you know, coming from an Indian background as well, I had some, you know, cultural beliefs that would be considered kind of new age, but they were cultural. So that was okay. Um, but the really new age thinking, I was like, come on, prove to me that it works, because otherwise, uh-huh. you know, I'm just not going to. Um, I would say that the, the best thing that my father ever did for me was Well, for a start, name me Tara, which means star and is the Hindu goddess of strength. Um, And then just tell me that I could do anything that I ever wanted to. I mean, that and I think he must have said it so many times because it's it's sort of like an entrenched memory. So it's, you know, it's like a pathway in my brain that I can do anything. I'm a star. Um, Just that positivity that you need as a child to give you some Mm self-belief later in life. Yeah. Well, okay, so. 
you know, you're of Indian descent. Now, when an Indian parent usually says you can do anything and be anything you want, it's usually followed with a caveat of you can be any kind of doctor, lawyer, or engineer mm-hmm. you want to be. Uh, and I know you're a doctor, so you kind of like, you know, my, one of my friends jokingly says that my sister is every Indian parent's dream come true because of the fact that she has pretty much hit every checkbox that an Indian, like, you know, mother in law would say, okay, wow, I, I know this because my sister got married recently. But, uh, and you in a lot of ways are kind of similar. Like, what was the narrative around your house, uh, growing up about careers and making your way in the world? Like, what did your parents tell you? Yeah, so I was the first child. So there was definitely a lot of expectation on me to conform to that kind of doctor lawyer. Um, My brother is actually a lawyer, but I always felt that he had a bit more choice in the subjects that he chose. So, so what's interesting is that I think when you grow up, um, you know, with a different cultural heritage to where you are, um, which is, I imagine what you had as well, Mm. that there are a lot of dilemmas and conflicts and dichotomies. And so Growing up, our house was full of trinkets that my parents had um, gathered from their travels. But as a family, I guess with two young kids, we didn't really travel very much apart from going to India to see the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and cousins. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. Um, however, you know, as soon as I was old enough to, I just wanted to travel like crazy. And that was slightly frowned upon, I have to say. Um, I also actually, like when I was about 16... My English teacher said to me, you are so talented. You should read English at university and try to become an actress. And my father said over my dead body. So he would never have said that I wasn't capable of doing it. But he said, I don't want you to do it. So, yeah, I absolutely went on this path of going to medical school. Even doing the PhD was very much about parental and teacher expectation. Um, And, you know, luckily I was smart enough and good at science that I could quite easily do those things. So it wasn't difficult for me to comply. Um, Mm -hmm. However, I think with the travel thing, you know, obviously my parents had traveled a lot and had all these stories and these amazing, unusual things around the house that I think that strong message of you can do anything you want eventually surfaced. I mean, not till my mid thirties, but I actually believe that despite them saying, this is what you should do, the, the sort of more, the deeper emotional resonance of you can do anything that you want eventually came out. I mean, much to their n- not liking it because, you know, giving up medicine is like a cardinal <laughs> sin. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, so th- there are a couple other questions I have about this. I mean, you grew up in the UK. I grew up uh, in the United States as an Indian American. Mm-hmm. Part of me wonders, what is it like to be the child of Indian immigrants in the UK? And how does that contrast, do you think, to the experience that I had? Uh, you know, like, what do you think is different about it? I I don't know. I have a few friends who are of Indian heritage that, that grew up, and some cousins, actually, that grew up in the States. I think that the the things that we struggle with are probably very similar. So I, I don't I don't think it's that different. But you tell me if you think there is something, because I'd be interested to know. Well, I mean, I think that for me, one, I, you know, I wonder what is the whole experience of going to school uh, when you're a kid? Like, granted, I've seen the in-betweeners and I'm like, OK, if that's the high school experience of, of young you know, British boys, I'm like that sounds about like my high school experience, just mm-hmm. a complete nerd with no ability to get a girl and having nothing on my mind but girls. Uh, and so I, I think about that and, and I wonder, you know, when, when my parents uh, you know, were with me, I was sort of the experiment because I was the first kid. And so when, you know, popular kids started coming out and people were buying nice clothes, they thought I was a complete freak of nature. When my sister came about to that phase in her life, it's like, oh, we've been all through all this before. Like mm. we've seen all this. So they knew how to handle it. And I wonder, you know, you being the first, did your parents have a similar experience? Like, I feel like my sister got away with things that I would never have gotten away with when I was 100%. in high school. hundred percent. So I feel like I was constantly fighting for my rights, basically, like, (laughs) and they were to just to be like my friends. I mean, I was the only kid in my sort of group of friends at school that wasn't allowed to sleepovers. And I think that's more of a girl thing than a boy thing. So Mm -hmm. I don't don't know if you were, but, um, and, you know, I certainly wasn't allowed to dress in the way that a teenage girl in London wants to dress. Um, Yeah. And so that all, you know, came out once I was 18. Um, there was definitely a lot of rebellion in terms of that I could actually do the things that I wanted to, whereas before I wanted to do them, but I couldn't. Um, I, I imagine that the gender thing actually does make a difference, but I think the 
you know, your place mm-hmm. in the hierarchy of the siblings also makes a difference. Because with the first one, I think that people who've moved hold on to their culture more strongly. So, you know, I was brought up vegetarian for the first five years of my life and then ate a bit of fish. But my brother, you know, he ate meat, he ate fish, he he just, you know, kind of, I felt, feel like you, like he could do whatever he wanted. Yeah. And But it was because I'd beaten that path, you know, to sort of mm-hmm. being a bit more flexible around the culture that you came from and the culture that you live in. Yeah. Were you born in India or uh, were you born in the UK? No, I was born in the UK, but my parents okay. came across. Yeah. Uh, how old were you when you guys, uh, or, or, so you were born there. So pretty much you've only known growing up there. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've only known growing okay. up there. And to be honest, it, it, it normalizes, doesn't it? So I was used to being that everybody around me being white and you don't really mm. look at yourself during the day. So you, you're not very aware of what color you are. I, I remember yeah. going to India and just being stared at so much <laughs> and feeling really uncomfortable. Like I didn't belong there. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, it's interesting because you belonging is a strange thing. And I think it's, it's ended up with me feeling like a citizen of the world and so comfortable traveling and going to new places and having friends like in America, South Africa, Australia. Um, mm-hmm. but, but growing up, it was like, I didn't really belong to any, you know, I was, I was sort of different everywhere I went. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? 
But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. So something you said is that that whole sort of belief of I, you know, can do anything, you know, it was there prevalent throughout your life, but yet you still followed this conventional path and it didn't surface until you were in your thirties. I don't think that's an uncommon story because I feel like half the people that I talk to are people who find themselves disillusioned with, you know, their high powered corporate job that they thought was going to make them happy or their amazing law degree, um, that nets them a ton of money and then they just leave it all. So, so I wonder, you know, you're, you know, a neuroscientist. So why does it take so many people so long to make that discovery? And you mentioned, you know, before we hit record that you were parents. I'm wondering, how does the experience that you've had and the process of knowing what you do from writing this book and the work that you've done with people influence and shape what you do as a parent? Mm. So there's lots, lots there really, isn't there? Um, So I think that, so the fact that the neuroscientist in me is saying that the longer a pathway has been developing in your brain, the more entrenched it is, the stronger an influence it has on you. So if for a long time people said, you must do well at school, you must go to university, you know, you must go on this career path, then the reason that it takes people just in a generic sense longer to break free from that is that that's been the filter through which they perceive life for the longest time. Um, so, and I think, you know, I'm so grateful for my education. I had an extremely privileged education. You know, I've got an Oxford University medical degree, I have a PhD in neuroscience. And that's definitely let me be able to make the choices that I've made later in life. So I'm under no illusions that, you know, a huge part of my success is because of the the education that I have. Um, So I think, you know, in terms of neuroplasticity and brain agility, which are my two big things that, you know, areas of research, the brain agility piece was really like, well, if I'm so smart at that, then I should be able to do anything. And it was only in my mid-30s that I really woke up and thought, well, what do I want to do? And um, just to answer the second part of your question, I'm actually a step-parent, so I've got an adult stepson. Um, But I know that quite a sort of guiding principle for me is to not do the things that I absolutely hated about the way that I was brought up. That's, That's quite strong. Um, and, and I keep it very, very simple that, you know, if you, if they know that you love them and you give them boundaries, so they feel safe, then you just have to pray that you've instilled the values in them that will lead them to make the right choices later in life. But you cannot, well, because especially because mine are adults, stepchildren, tell them what to do. Um, Uh yeah. So yeah, it's it's interesting for me coming to parenting much later in life that, Uh where I can apply more psychological skills because I'm talking to an adult, that that's really suited me. I don't think, you know, that sort of diapers and sleepless nights would have particularly played to my strength. So, Well, okay. So I'm so glad you brought up that you're a step-parent because that, you know, raises a question of Indian parents, I think, have a very clear idea of sort of what family values and a family unit looks like. And my guess is it wasn't, hey, I'm going to be a step-parent to adult children. Like that's going to be the way that my family is. So I wonder... What has that dynamic been like in terms of navigating it with your family? Mm. Um, well, I had, <laughs> to be honest, it wasn't that bad because I'd already got married once and got divorced, which was the terrible bit. So once I'd done uh-huh. that, I couldn't really do anything that much more wrong <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> I think they were just so relieved that I got married again at all. But um, yeah. yeah, and yeah, and then actually, as you know, what Indian parents are like, um, they completely accepted my husband and my stepson as their family and that, you know, there's never been any issue with that. But I think 
you know, both my marriages have been to people that aren't Indian. And there's definitely been, well, you know, certainly when I was in my 20s and I met my first husband, there was a much bigger issue with that. Uh So not being married to somebody who's Indian, it's it's funny because I I think about this a lot because my sister got married. Nobody expected in a million years that she would marry an Indian guy and she did. And one of the things I noticed was how much tradition was involved in the wedding. And so one of the things I always wonder when people of different races marry, particularly those who have, you know, sort of this cultural heritage is how do you preserve and, and choose to, pre- you know, to preserve aspects of Indian culture in your relationship with your partner? And, and you know, because I had thought about this a lot. I thought to myself, you know, the first thing that probably is going to go, and I, and I even wonder this with my sister, right? Because we're from Andhra Pradesh and we speak Telugu and the guy she married is Bengali. And I thought, okay, wait a minute. The first thing to go potentially is language. And I know Mm -hmm. for a fact that if I don't marry an Indian girl, that is definitely going to go out the window. So I wonder how you think about preserving aspects of heritage and culture in a uh, relationship where the person you're married to is not of the same race. Yeah, I think you do have to give it a lot more thought, obviously. Um, And I think language is so important that actually in my first marriage, we both tried to learn each other's language and we were both multilingual. So it was not that difficult and something that we were really motivated to do. So that was, that was nice. Um, funnily enough, having, you know, grown up in London and kind of kept the two things quite separate. So having that Indian cultural heritage, which I'm extremely proud of, but more at home and not so much with my friends. When it came to getting married, I was absolutely without a doubt going to get married in a red sari. I was not even going to consider a white dress. So there was, and I'm pretty, you know, strong-minded, so there was no discussion about that. <laughs> um, even though I had not grown up wearing Indian clothes much at all, um, really only for like religious ceremonies, like once a year, or if I went to India. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that was definitely important to me. Um, and actually, my hus- my first husband, who's um, white South African, wore um, Indian clothes, and so did his brother to the wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really just about being so respectful of each other's culture. I don't think it can be anything other than that. And, mm. um, you know, India is just such an amazing country. So we actually went there on our honeymoon and we, you know, traveled around there um, several times. Um, I've been to India with my my husband now and we're going again, actually, um, just after Christmas. So I think being Indian and Hindu or having that sort of, you know, Eastern philosophy, the sort of Buddhist, Hindu, Eastern philosophy actually makes it quite easy to li- have that in your life without it being too um, onerous on somebody else. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was writing about this the other day. I thought this is one of the strange paradoxes of Indian culture, right? The One of the primary messages of our most important spiritual text, the Bhagavad Gita, is that you're not entitled to the fruits of your labor. Yet, Indians, I feel, assess somebody's value in society based entirely on the fruits of their labor. Mm. And I wonder what you'd have to say about that, given the nature of the work you do. And then we'll actually start getting into this brain plasticity piece. (laughs) Um, I do think there's something to that. And obviously, you know, you and I grew up with that. So I think there's a lot of, you know, caring very much about what other people think and what your children are doing and what other people's children are doing and that sort of thing. But then you know, I think we have the privilege of choosing the best bits and not necessarily taking the bits that we don't like so much. So for me, the spiritual part of it is really the, the part that I have brought into my life most strongly. And so, you know, for instance, my husband now, who's half Canadian, but very British, um, said to me that you have no issue. You, it doesn't make you feel less of a person or, you know, mistreated as a woman to be in service to others all the time. And he said, you are the person that's done the most for me in my whole life, but you're the most free spirited person I know. And so doing things for others doesn't demean you. It doesn't mean that you're not a free spirit. But I think that's very cultural for us, you know, that, that um, you know, sort of being of service, being helpful, being generous, being kind, feeding people. Those are big parts of, of that, you know, Hindu philosophy um, mm-hmm. and, you know, not being materialistic. So, yeah, I think those are things that my husband and stepson now really appreciate about me. Uh-huh. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to the book. And, it, you know, I have my notes in front of me. And these are the first two things that caught my mind that, that I ended up writing down. Or, you know, you say we've moved away from emotions to logic and facts and survival through competition became our means to an end. We lost the sense of abundance that had got us so far and the sense that 
there was enough for everyone. And then you say, we've demoted depth, passion, and instinct and come to rely on the surface level capabilities of such as exams, rote learning, or transactional relationships that are more connected with material gain than joy. We live a life dominated by stress and are too busy to really take notice of who we are, where we're going, and what we want from life. And you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's such an interesting way to, to really begin the conversation about what you do, particularly because of what we just said about this paradox of spirituality and materialism that exists in the culture that we grew up in. And yet you've also taken an incredibly science-based approach to this, which is why I think I, you know, I said, I appreciated, uh, this so much. So, with that in mind, you know, one, I'd love to just sort of have you address, you know, those two, two quotes from the book. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you read that. I sort of feel amazed that I wrote that, but then I listened to it and I think so true, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) that's what I see. I mean, that, you know, obviously I thought about it a lot before I wrote it and it, it kind of gives me goosebumps because that's, you know, the conclusion I've come to is that my emotions and my intuition are, you know, they're not, those sorts of things are not valued by society. Logic and, you know, kind of material success is very valued by society, I feel. Um, And actually, you know, my biggest message is that your brain is amazing and has so much more potential than than you know. And that's why it was important to back it up with science to to show people that that's true. Uh Um, But if you think about humans and how we've evolved and everything that we've achieved, it is amazing. But there was a time where we couldn't speak, we could only grunt and gesture. And it was that that intuition and instinct and, you know, that primal brain body connection that really got us to this next level. But it's almost like as soon as we got to the next level, we just threw away everything that we'd had before. And I think we're starting to see issues with that now with social media and technology and lots of things, you know, all the psychosocial and geopolitical crises around the world. And so I feel strongly that it is going to be about reconnecting to to nature, to some of these ancient philosophies. Um, and I've forgotten the second part of your question. Well, no, I think really more than anything, it was really, I wanted to hear, have you comment on all of that. But I, I think that that, you know, really one of the things I know you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation is that you basically focus on brain plasticity as your area of research. So where I want to start is, uh, you know, what are we actually capable of changing and how much can we change? And I'll give you some context for this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, we've had every world class performer you could possibly think of here from performance psychologist to Elon Musk's ex-wife. And two conversations come to mind for me that um, I wanted to ask you about in the context of this question in terms of what we're capable of changing at a certain age. Uh, the first was with Dan Coyle, who wrote The Talent Code and, uh, you know, another book about teams that succeed. And when I asked him about certain skills, for example, athletic ability or musical talent, he said, you know, you can get to a certain point in adult life where the brain plasticity isn't what it used to be. He said, can you get good enough to, you know, add a musical instrument to impress the hell out of your friends and family in your thirties? Yeah, absolutely. But he said, are you going to be opening for you two at their next concert? Probably not. And then I think the other component of this, and this is one that's really interesting to me, is when we look at sort of the, you know, Larry and Sergey's of the world, the Elon Musk's of the world, um, Justine, Elon Musk's ex-wife, said, you know, this is not something that can be learned. Not that she wanted to be deterministic, but there are certain people who are simply going to turn out that way. And, you know, these aren't people who sit around reading self-help books to build their empires. And so, you know, I wonder, my sense is that there have to be some limits to what we're capable of. Mm -hmm. So I agree with the way that Dan has put it, but I think that because of that, a lot of people think, well, you know, I'm not going to start, I'm not going to bother starting to play the piano because at best I'll be able to impress my friends. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you started at the age of five, you could be opening for anyone basically. But just because you start later, I think the issue is that people don't start and they give up because they believe I can never be really that good. But I mean, how many people open for you two anyway? It's not necessarily about that. <laughs> um, yeah. I think there's the pleasure of learning a musical instrument and being able to impress people. But to me, there's always the twofold advantage of increasing uh-huh. plasticity in your brain. So, yeah. I mean, for example, one of the, you know, the fifth language that I started learning a few years ago was Danish. And I wasn't really going to use it that much in business or in life. 
it was very difficult. I picked it because it was difficult because I already spoke four languages. Um, and, you know, I had lessons every week. I was over 40. I can't remember exactly how much, but 40 or 41. And I had lessons every week and there were 90 minute lessons. And usually by an hour, I was really hungry and tired. So I started taking sort of junk food with me because I just like need sugar for my brain. I had about eight lessons, went to Denmark for a couple of weeks, came back, had my lesson. And she said, okay, well, we're done for this week. I'll see you next week. And I said, what, has that been 90 minutes already? And she said, yeah. And I thought, oh, I didn't feel hungry or tired. And then I realized that I'd induced enough plasticity in my brain that the pathway for Danish had become a reasonable pathway. And I wasn't really enjoying it that much. So I thought, well, I've got the neuroplasticity benefit, which is what I really wanted. So I'm not going to continue with this. Um, but I'm pretty sure that if I had continued, I, I could have become, you know, not necessarily like native speaker fluent, but fluent uh -huh. enough to go to Denmark on my own and, um, you know, absolutely go on holiday, maybe even have some work meetings in Danish. So I think it depends why you're doing what you're doing. But the main message from my point of view about that whole statement of you might get this good, but you're not going to get that good is at least try because you're going to be a lot better than you are now. Um, mm -hmm. And it will have what I call global benefits on your brain. So as soon as you do something that forces your brain to become more flexible, you actually get other improvements like emotional regulation, ability to suppress biases, ability to solve complex problems, think more flexibly, think creatively. So who doesn't want that? So I have a question for you out of morbid curiosity, because I don't think I've had anybody in your position that I could ask this question to. Uh, you know, I asked it to Dan. He kind of gave me some answer, but Dan is more of a journalist. You're more of a scientist. So one thing I've always wondered is what 700 plus interviews and conversations with people like you for 10 years and reading hundreds of books has done to my brain. Like, I always wonder what was my brain like before? And one of my friends said, your brain is like a, an encyclopedia of inf referential information. It's kind mm -hmm. of mind boggling. And, you know, I'm just curious from a scientific perspective or a neuroscience perspective, like, what do you think has gone on during this time? Yeah, so yours is the kind of brain that when we all upload our consciousness to the internet, I want a piece of yours and everything <laughs> that you know. <laughs> um, so what would have happened with you, though? It's funny, I was having this conversation in a London taxi cab just yesterday. Uh -huh. um, because London cab drivers are famous for, they do the knowledge, which is that they memorize every street in London. And it takes years. And there have been scientific studies that show that from before and after completing the knowledge, the specific part of the brain, um, which is part of the hippocampus where navigation and memory are stored, that physically grows. Um, and he was saying, yeah, but, you know, you're a neuroscientist, so your brain must have grown and other people have done amazing things. And I said, well, the reason that you're so interesting is that you've done one very specific thing. And we can see that your brain's grown in the specific area that that's related to. Someone like you, who I would call a polyglot, you know, who sort of knows a lot about a lot of things, there won't be a specific area in your brain that we could measure um, that's actually physically grown. But your whole brain map, which is very dynamic, would have grown and changed over time. And, um, you know, I'll take a very good guess that your executive functions, those one, ones I just mentioned, emotional regulation and solving complex problems, that you'll be better at that. And I'm also guessing that you were brought up bilingual, which means that you had a head start from the beginning, because that's the single best thing you can do for your children. If you're, mm. you know, raising children from birth is bring them up bilingual. Wow. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age? led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition. They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wait, I have to, we have to ask you about that. It's funny you say that because I, you know, prior to this project, prior to Unmistakable Creative, I was the person who got fired from every job I ever had, um, which anybody listening to this knows, so I won't beat that like a dead horse. But yes, I mean, I think that over time, the ability to finish the things I've started, the ability to move at a pace that most people find unreasonable have all, I think, just developed as a byproduct of the work that I've done. I, you know, I think to me, I said, you know, the best part of writing a book is not the fact that you have a book at the end of it, but it's who you become and the skills you develop as a byproduct of it. Mm. Because regardless mm. of how the book turns out, now you have the ability to take something very vague and bring it to life and work on something for a really long time. And to me, that was something I knew. I said, no matter what happened with my books, I could take that and apply it to anything for the rest of my life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're just firing off so many thoughts in my brain. So one is going back to what you said about what's it like being married to someone from a different culture and with a different language. I would have seen that as an opportunity to have a child that was trilingual from, you know, from the time they started speaking. So I would, you know, I would want to harness all the best bits of that. And then just going back to what you said about Elon Musk's ex-wife about, you know, some people can, can do all of these amazing things and not everybody can. Yes, of course, there is a genetic element to people's, you know, intelligence and capability and leadership skills and, you know, ability to think creatively. But it's a lot less impactful than we used to think. So, you know, from Darwinism, we thought DNA is everything and um, sort of, you know, what happens to you in utero or in childhood doesn't have as much of an effect. Then it became a bit more equal. But now with the growing field of epigenetics, which is the influence that the environment has on your genes. We know that lifestyle factors can actually switch on or switch off certain gene expression. 
So it's become more dynamic again. So yeah, okay, not everybody's going to be Elon Musk for sure, but everybody has more potential than what they naturally reach. And that's why neuroplasticity is so exciting. Mm. So now, before we get into the sort of six principles of law of attraction that you've um, laid out, one thing I do want to ask you is, why is the kind of thinking that you're talking about not more prevalent in our modern education system? Why are we not teaching people that they can get better at things? Because you know, I, I think about my own life and I think about the fact that I was taught pretty early on that I didn't have any athletic ability uh, and that was playing team sports. At 42, I'm an avid surfer and snowboarder. Those things require athletic ability. And so I wonder why you think this isn't more prevalent in our education system. I, I'd imagine that educators have to be interested in the work that you're doing for better outcomes. Yeah, it's interesting. Since the book came out in the States, three different sets of people have said you should write the version of this for kids and young adults. Mm. Um, and, you know, a few people have said this should be in schools. You know, you should be working with schools. And actually that's starting to happen a little bit. So I like Carol Dweck's work from Stanford. Yeah. And I think that her work on growth mindset has done something to advance that message um, for children and in schools. Um, I think it's very sad that it's not the case. You know, I, I'm not one of these people that wishes I was young and wishes I lived till I'm 100. But I wish I'd known about neuroplasticity when I was 18 or younger, because I think it would have allowed me to do, you know, to do a lot more. Um, yeah. I would say that my parents, they didn't really value sports. So I wasn't really told that I didn't have athletic ability, but it wasn't seen as important. And then as soon as I was, you know, at university and then living on my own as a young doctor, I was only ever in like sports clothes because I would just, you know, be doing physical exercise or sports like all the time. Um, I was told that um, because I wasn't good at art, I was told at school that I wasn't creative. And because I was very good at maths and science, but actually I was also really good at languages and history and geography. And my parents wanted me to be a doctor. I was very much pushed down that path. And so, you know, even being on your podcast, that's called The Unmistakable Creative, gives me a little glow of, I am creative. You know, like for 20 years, I believed that I wasn't creative because one teacher said that to me at school when I was at an impressionable age. And that's the kind of thing that I really want to overturn. I just, you know, I think children's mm. brains are the biggest untapped potential that we have in this world for our future, for everything. And wow. we cannot be saying things like that to children. Wow. Well, let's do this. Let's get into the six principles of the law of attraction. Like I said, I loved this because you backed it all up with science. And, you know, I want to start with abundance. One of the things that you said is abundance feeds our self-esteem and confidence helps us stay resilient during tough times and is infectious and generative, creating a flourishing environment and community around us. Like attracts like. And if you look around you, you'll find positive, confident people or friends, partners, or business partners with similar mindsets. And I want to look at this from a scientific perspective because, you know, as we were talking about, I think the law of attraction, the, the secret convinced people that they could just sit around meditating and thinking about the things they want, staring mm -hmm. at vision boards, and they would get whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Now, I tend to be a person who is rationally optimistic, and I'll give you an example to frame this. No matter how abundant I was thinking about it, um, we tried to plan a conference recently. We didn't sell enough tickets. We had to cancel the event. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter how positively I thought about it. Uh, and I, so with that in mind, let's go into the science-based uh, approach to abundance. Can I ask you a question about that before I go into the science? Yeah, please. Where, Absolutely. So I'm going to hypothesize that you were doing many, many different things at the same time that you were trying to organize this event. <laughs> That's safe to say. That's yeah. kind of my, my nature. Yeah. I mean, I'm friend. usually working on three or four creative projects at once. Do you believe that if the only thing you were doing was focusing on making that event successful, you would have sold more than enough tickets? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. No, I don't. Interesting. I, I always find that when something like that doesn't work, the reason is that I didn't put my full focus and attention on it. Um, and I like to operate on the principle that not everything works in life and that, you know, definitely there are things that haven't worked out for me, but that, you know, with a tangible event like that, that if yeah. I wasn't distracted by so many other things and I put all of my attention into making that thing work, that I could have. Um, mm. And this probably relates back to, you know, the message that my father imprinted on my brain from a young age and and what I've learned about abundance. So let me 
let me take you there and try and persuade you that um that you can you can put on that event bigger and better than you were going to um so the strongest gearing in our brain and this goes very much back to you know cave times and where i talked about before we could speak and um how we evolved is so the strongest gearing is called loss aversion which is that our tendency to want to avoid losing something is much stronger than our tendency to seek a reward. And the psychological effect of loss aversion is two to 2.5 um, times as strong as, as gain, um, follow, you know, trying to get gain. Uh-huh. And because that definitely, you know, helped us to survive, survive as a species millennia ago, it's been in our wiring for a very long time. Now, I don't like the phrase hard wiring. At best, I will accept that there is soft wiring, which is a default that we all you know, tend to go to, especially if we're hungry or tired. But um, this is a really strong one. It's been there for a long time and it's built to make us survive. And so it's important. And you can't really unpick that in the brain and make it go away. So it is there. But you have to make a conscious effort to not make every decision and choice and you know what you do in life about avoiding loss and to make it about getting something positive in your life and it doesn't have to be an actual thing like a material thing it can just be it can be quite an intangible thing it can just be self-belief confidence happiness um or, you know a relationship or it can be things as well mm-hmm. um so basically to cultivate abundant thinking so that it's more natural for you to not default to that loss aversion, um, I think is very important. So you gave, you know, you, you quoted a few phrases that I'd used about abundant thinking, but the yeah. one that I think is the most important now that I've been speaking about the book a lot more is the way that you think determines your life. If you think everything's going to fail and nothing good's ever going to happen for you, that's probably going to be true. Right. If, if you think that, you know, that being generous, what goes around comes around, that if you're kind to people, that generally people will help you, that the world is a safe place, then it's likely that your life will be a bit easier and more good things will happen to you. And that that's the self-perpetuating sort of generative bit of it. Uh-huh. So we need to understand that old wiring that we have, cultivate abundant thinking, and then gather and preferably note down, because otherwise we forget, examples of times that positive things have happened to you because you've believed that they would, you've acted in a way that it's going to work out, you've um, you know, allocated your time and resources to something because you don't have that fear that it's going to fail. Just mm-hmm. changing the way that you think like that, because and and we're all on a spectrum, you know, some people are naturally more like that and some people are very glass half empty. So right. just Pushing yourself along that spectrum as much as you can is a really good place to start. And that's why I picked it as the first law of attraction. Okay. So you're a neuroscientist, so I know that you also are a very logical and rational person as well. Uh, and the reason I'm, I mentioned this, right, is we had uh, this guy, Alberto Savoya here, who had talked about, he was the director of innovation at Google. And he talked about, you know, why, you know, most products fail and how to make her succeed. And one of the things he said is the biggest mistake people make is neglecting data. And loss aversion also can, I feel, become a cognitive bias that causes us to stay in something far past when we should. So back to the example I gave you, when I started looking at this, I thought to myself, you know, we have investors that we're fiscally responsible for. If this bombs, the losses that we've accumulated now will seem, you know, like a pittance in comparison to the ones that are potential, uh, potentially going to happen. So I, I wonder how you balance what you just said with if the you know no matter how positive you are if the data disagrees with your positivity and your belief you're not you know you're you're not optimistic you're delusional yeah yeah we i so we absolutely balance it and that's why um i'm just going to relate this to something else that you've mentioned that i also speak about so vision boards that's why i say you cannot just create a collage of your fantasy life and sit at home <laughs> waiting for it to come true yeah. um you can create imagery that relates to things that you deeply desire in your life. Um, You know, if you're not really, really tall, then it can't be, I want to be a model, for example. Um, And if you don't have pretty decent hand-eye coordination, then it probably isn't going to be some kind of sport either. But it doesn't mean that you can't do it for enjoyment, like surfing or snowboarding. Um, 
So you, you have to pick things that are somewhat realistic, but like the best version of realistic that you that you can possibly think of. Mm-hmm. And you also have to do things every day to move yourself closer to reaching those goals. It is absolutely not about being delusional and fantasizing about a life that you're doing nothing to try to attain. Um, no. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to put myself in danger because I believe that I can achieve something. And I really do believe in that fail fast and often. So the quicker you realize this isn't going to work out and you shelve that one and you focus on one of the other creative projects that you're working on and you give that more of your brain energy, you're just going to be more successful. So it becomes less about that particular event working out and more about your creative projects in general being as successful as they could be. Okay. So the other thing I want to ask you about this is this is something I, I've been writing about since I happen to have, you know, a neuroscientist here is, is when we fail at something from a neuroscience based perspective, what are the keys to bouncing back from that quickly? Because what I realized right when I saw that this wasn't going to work was I, I, I knew from previous experience that if we kept going down this path, I'd be going into the beginning of the year with this energy under my belt. And I was like, I'd rather start the year with a clean slate so that I can have my attention a hundred percent on other things. Um, and I remember texting an old business partner. He's like, good. He was like, now you can focus on whatever is next. But I think for many of us, we tend to get stuck um, in that sort of failure and let it become this very debilitating thing that, you know, kind of takes away energy from what we could be putting into whatever's next. So are there ways to bounce back quickly from this? There are. And I would say that that's pretty much my life's work, you know, based on the neuroplasticity and the brain agility that I would say the third piece is about mental resilience. And so... I have seen in my um, coaching and executive advising work that the single point of difference between, let's say, two CEOs or two, you know, founder entrepreneurs in terms of, you know, having everything else being equal, like qualifications and experience is mental resilience, because it's the person that can keep going through adversity or bounce back when things go wrong. And so, you know, I've had my own personal journey with this where you know, sometimes things would really get me down. And, you know, we all know the difference between the day that you genuinely say, I'm afraid I'm, you know, I'm just absolutely full on the list with coaching clients at the moment. So I'd love to work with you, but there is a three or six month waiting list that people just want you so much more when you say that, that when, you know, when you're squeezed and your price goes up for traveling to a certain conference or something that people want you more and think you're better. And I always think I wish we could just bottle that and use that even on the, the bad days, you know, like when when you're feeling like I don't have enough client work, I'm, um, you know, I'm sort of not managing to to sort of, you know, balance the profit and loss very well. But you had the the confidence to say my fee is something, you know, higher than than you normally charge. So we know what it feels like to be on one of those good days where everything goes right, where we're confident, we, you know, we close a deal or we sort of um, get something that we haven't achieved before. Um, And it is about trying to apply that, not not in a fake way, but trying to harness that positive, you know, abundant thinking as much as possible when when you're tired, when you're not feeling great, when things haven't been going well. And I actually heard a quote recently that really made me think of this, which is, any shock only lasts for 48 hours. So, you know, any piece of bad news, any disappointment – I now sort of have a rule that for one or two days, you can wallow in self-pity if that's what you need to do. But then uh-huh. I, d- I never allow it to go on for longer than that. But, um, you know, there are some things that we struggle with for a very, very long time. And I've actually thought, you know, since, I, like you said, when you write a book, it changes you. And since I wrote The Source, I thought, you know, I've worked so hard on those six ways of thinking, and which includes emotional, you know, mastering your emotions. and you know, bad things can ha- come from left field in life and you, you never know what they're going to be. I'll be really interested to see how quickly I bounce back from the next thing that goes wrong. Yeah. Based on everything that I've, you know, written about and learned. <laughs> and, um, well, yeah, I always, you know, somebody, I remember even with my own book, uh, you know, I wrote this book called An Audience of One Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And one of the primary messages of the book was not to get caught up in metrics. And my sister calls and she's like, how's it going? I was like, ah, it hasn't sold that many copies. She's like, 
dude, that's the primary message of the book. You basically don't believe what you wrote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, I always wonder, you know, like sometimes I think, okay, yes, we're not immune to any of the things we write about, even though we happen to solve these problems for people. Like somebody once told me that, oh, you must be the most self-actualized person in the world after listening to a mm. few episodes of the podcast. I was like, no, I'm mm. like, I'm probably one of the most fucked up people in the world. This is why I choose <laughs> the people that I do as my guests. Uh, so yeah, I, I've always wondered about that, but let's, let's talk about this idea of manifestation and magnetic desire, because I, like I said, I, I think the movie, the secret in my mind, in a lot of ways led to all these really beautiful careers for authors and other people, but it also did a great disservice to a lot of people, um, because they just, you know, tried to self-help their way into things and ended up going nowhere. So let's look at, you know, the idea of manifesting from, you know, a science-based perspective. Let's, let's say that everybody listening to this says, okay, what I want to manifest next year is more money. So let's start there. How do we do that? Okay, so a couple of things. Um, one is, I don't necessarily want to go back, but I did have an incident of extremely, extremely bad news where I thought, you know, I was literally like a zombie for two days. It was basically a terminal cancer diagnosis of a very good friend of mine who's under 50 with three little children. And it was literally, it was on a Friday and it was like, I've been sent home to die for the weekend. And I sort of, like I said, I had the two days where I, I couldn't really function. And then I thought, okay, I have to pick myself up because all I can do now is be there for that person. And it could be days. And actually, I'm happy to say that over a year later, he is still alive and he has been amazing. But I also thought, okay, this is the worst piece of news I've had since I've written the book. And and actually, all the things that I'd learned did help me to sort of think differently and turn it around. And um, so I th I'm not the most self-actualized person in the world either, but I do think that, that is, it's possible to grow that capability. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a really important thing to say. Um, so, and then I, another point that I want to make is that I don't really want to talk about um, I want to make a certain amount of money as, as the example, because sure. to me, that's not, that's the least thing that it's about. And actually, if okay. that's the motivation, I don't, I don't believe that that is a proper motivation for anything. And that's often why things go wrong. So uh, as you know, at the beginning of the book, I write about set an intention. Mm -hmm. And I think knowing what your intention is, even if it is for making a lot of money is very important because it can't just be, I want to make a lot of money. Um, when I started up my business 12 years ago and I started doing vision boards within a year or two of that, I did used to put a specific amount of money that I wanted the business to make in the following year. Um, but to be honest, at that stage, it was more about surviving and being able to pay my rent and my bills than actually making lots of money. And later, when that wasn't an issue, I just made it more about abundance. Like, for example, I had a picture of a citrine crystal because that represents abundance. And it was just to say, like, I'm not going to have to worry about money, but then, but let's make it about the things that, you know, are more about leaving a legacy mm -hmm. or being in service to others. Um, so I would certainly have things on my board that were to do with traveling to certain places. Um, for example, writing a book, um, um, building, you know, building a business, but, but it, the primary motivation was not to make, to make a lot of money. Um, it was to do something meaningful, to make a difference in the world, to, you know, make my existence actually worthwhile. Um, mm -hmm. And if you also make quite a lot of money at the same time that you're doing that, then great. But I, I really strongly don't believe that that should ever be the primary motivation. And and I'll tell you why, because I changed career in 2007, 2008. So when I started coaching, which was then mostly in investment banks, um, you know, I was a former psychiatrist and I was specializing in stressed executives. And, you know, I, I, I worked with people who had colleagues that dropped dead of heart attacks on trading floors next to them. And I worked with people who had stress-induced but minor heart attacks themselves. Um, and a lot of people that were suicidal. And so many of them said, I wanted to be a journalist or I wanted to be a teacher, but I chose this job because I wanted a certain lifestyle. And it took a shock, like the global financial crisis, to make people rethink why they were doing what they were doing. Um, so I've actually really seen money make people very physically un and mentally unwell. Um, mm. But so give me another example. 
Fair enough. I, I think, you know, when I, when I think about what you said there about money, one of the things that comes back to me is a conversation I had with uh, Manisha Takor, who, who said she's worked with everybody from, you know, billionaires to entrepreneurs. And she said, you know, one of the things we don't do is think about what our own definition of enough is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I came up with that definition, uh, when I thought about it, okay, what would I use the money for? Then it suddenly became a hell of a lot more meaningful mm-hmm. to say, okay, it's not the dollar amount. It's what I would do with this. That I think really is where the intention came from. It was like, oh, you know, there are things that I know I want to do. For example, I saw my sister get married. I was like, oh, okay, right now this is not feasible for me. That's one of the reasons I would want to make more money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it was things like that. So, you know, that would probably be one. I'd, I'd wonder what you'd have to say about that. But um, I, I like the idea of an intention. Um, so, for example, you know, like I want to, let's say that you know, I want to get our business to the point where the people who are contributing to it, like our community manager, Melina, are making, you know, like they're able to live the lives they want off of it. And I'm able to live the life I want, mm. I want off of it, mm. which doesn't require, you know, it's not about Learjets or anything like that. Um, pretty much when I, I remember when I ran the numbers, I was like, wow, this isn't anywhere as near as big as I thought. Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing is that it's different for different people. For, so for some people, it will just be that I don't have to be in debt. And, you know, equally, I've had a client who was a billionaire and I was doing this might surprise you, but I was doing a self-esteem exercise with him because we realized there was an issue there. And um, we were going to build up to some of the more critical issues like body image and relationship status. And so I said, well, let's start with wealth because that's an easy one for us to use as an example of how this exercise works because there's actual self and ideal self. And um, so I said, you know, for you, those should be like pretty overlapping or the same. And he said, well, well, no, I don't, I don't know if I actually even am a billionaire. I mean, I might have $900,000 and I'm often the poorest guy in the room. So it's so relative. Um, you can, you know, like you said, it's about having enough. Um, and then I'd say the happiest people in the world are the ones who have enough and then a little bit extra to have a bit more freedom and choice in life. And if, you know, a few extra things that they really enjoy, like, you know, for you, maybe it's like to get married or for some people it's to travel um, uh-huh. so the, so the, the magnetic desire is, it's a combination of a very strong emotion. So, so something that you really, really, really want. And then the, the magnetism part is the abundant thinking and the vision boards and everything that you do to make that thing come true. And so mm. that, that kind of leads to manifestation, which is the part where you actually, you know, bring that into your real life. Um, yeah. so yeah, magnetic desire was, was, you know, just a nice phrase because it really puts together how important emotion is. And if we think about basic human emotions, um, the, you know, the, the model that I've used in the book is of these eight basic human emotions. And because of loss aversion, five of the eight are what we call survival emotions. So fear, anger, disgust, shame, and sadness. They're all things that we would do anything to avoid. And that's actually helped us to survive. At the other end of the spectrum are love, trust, love and trust on one and then joy and excitement. So those are the emotions that are behind magnetic desire. You know, the things that you really want, the things that bring you love or make you feel, you know, safe and, and trusting and make you excited. And then in between those two sets of emotions is surprise. And I do believe now more that I've been doing vision boards for a long time that I don't try to cover every aspect of what I want. I try to leave a bit of room for magic, basically. So, you know, you and I don't actually know everything that every good thing that could happen to us. So I like to leave a bit of room for something that I didn't expect to be able to happen. Um, And so the manifestation part is is really that the the extension of the, the vision board becoming an action board, which is that the vision board primes your brain to notice opportunities that may otherwise have passed you by but the additional bit to that is that primes your brain to notice and grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed you by so manifestation is about grasping opportunities and making you know the things that you dream of um, into a reality thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast while you were listening were there any moments you found fascinating inspiring instructive maybe even heartwarming Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? What if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.